Welcome to Kidney Essentials. This is a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephrocurious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. We're here to make nephrology more accessible one podcast at a time. And sexy. Don't forget sexy, Sophie. Indeed. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Most important part. Okay, so let's start with introductions. Judy? So I'm Judy Blaine. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and UCH Hospital on the Anschutz campus. I have no conflict of interest. And my um, Twitter handle is at Judy Blaine 2. Sarah? Hi, my name is Sarah Young. I am a clinical nephrologist at the University of Colorado, and I practice at the UCH Hospital's Anschutz campus, and I have no conflicts of interest. And my Twitter handle is at kidneycritic. And I am your host for tonight. My name is Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the Denver VA and on faculty at the University of Colorado as well. My Twitter handle is at Sophia Kidney, and I have no correct no conflicts of interest. So let's get started. Greetings, everyone, and happy, I guess it's spring now, although it's not seeming like it here. No, it's it's snowing here in Denver. Again, snowed on Monday too, (laughs) and over the weekend. (laughs) Branches fell everywhere. There was actually a branch through the hood of a brand new new Audi in our street. That's not good. That's why... Yeah, I never buy expensive cars for that reason. <laughs> okay, so moving moving on to the case. Oh, at least to what I have to say first before we get to our case. Um, if you haven't already, please check out our last full episode, podcast episode six. That covers all things albuminuria and proteinuria. I think it was a, or this is, or at least it is a great segue into today's topic of diabetic kidney disease. Because diabetic kidney disease is such a big topic, we've decided to break it into two podcasts. Actually, you'll see that there's maybe a bit more. Sarah, inform us. Maybe three podcasts, maybe four podcasts. <laughs> and there may be six podcasts on diabetic nephrology <laughs> before topic. we're done. There are a lot of podcasts in this topic. There's a lot to be said. While people might find it boring, it's not boring at all. Anyways, today we will be discussing epidemiology and a little bit of treatment. No one's going to find our podcast boring, Sophie. Don't even suggest that. I didn't suggest that. I just said that they may think it is in real life. (laughs) All right. And then in our next podcast, we'll probably be touching base on some RAS inhibition, maybe diabetes and RAS inhibition. And then finally, we'll cover diagnosis and treatment in the third, fourth, or fifth. So all I have to say is I'm excited. (laughs) I see Sarah has muted herself, but she's laughing, so she's making me giggle. (laughs) Okay, so on to our case. Your primary care colleague consults you for a 45-year-old woman with poorly controlled type 1 diabetes, complicated by diabetic neuropathy, hypertension, creatinine of 1.6, and proteinuria. So Sophie, when you say proteinuria, how much proteinuria does she have? She has 800 milligrams per gram of albuminuria and 1,600 milligrams per gram of proteinuria. 
Well, while we're talking about her urine, uh, Sophie, what does her dipstick show? She had two plus plus protein on her dipstick. No red cells, no white cells, no casts on microscopy. And is her proteinuria getting worse or her albuminuria getting worse? Yeah. So the patient's urine albumin was previously described as minimal or microalbuminuria. Uh, I think it was measurements were about 250 milligrams per gram, if I recall. And the patient's serum creatinine had risen from 0.6 milligrams per deciliter to 1.1 milligrams per deciliter over the last two years. And does she have retinopathy? As a matter of fact, she does. And Judy, why do you care whether she has retinopathy? Because um, depending on the type of diabetes that she has, uh, retinopathy and diabetic nephropathy or damage to the kidneys often go hand in hand. Yes, indeed. I would say probably more strongly type 1, but a pretty strong association still with type 2. Would you agree? Yes, that is okay. correct. So let's go a little bit into that. Um, Sarah, just also to briefly recap from last week, what is your diagnosis and why? Yeah, so as we talked about on our last podcast, which I don't think was last week, but that makes us sound much more productive than we actually have been. <laughs> I put the script together. I started that a while ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, as we talked about on our last podcast, diabetic nephropathy is usually a clinical diagnosis. Um, and 40 percent of patients with diabetes will get diabetic kidney disease. Um, it's a little bit more common in type twos than in type ones. Um, and we know she has diabetes. So by far, that's the most likely explanation for why she has proteinuria. And we know she has other complications of her diabetes. And specifically, um, we talked about why retinopathy was important. And there is a correlation, as we already said, between retinopathy and nephropathy. And, um, as, we talked about also in our last podcast, diabetic kidney disease is the leading cause of chronic kidney disease worldwide. So just statistically, it is the most likely, but we know that we should always create a differential when we're looking at patients with kidney disease. Yeah. Since you're so confident that this is diabetic nephropathy, would you do anything else to work this patient up? Um, I definitely would. So um, she you know, has what we call isolated proteinuria. So in other words, she doesn't have a lot of not already any blood in her urine, um, and so you'd want to do an appropriate workup for that. Given her age, I'd want to check her for, uh, for any presence of abnormal monoclonal proteins, so we'd, I'd do a serum protein electrophoresis test as well as serum-free light chains, and then other diseases that are pretty common like hepatitis C or hepatitis B can also cause isolated proteinuria, so I'd want to check her for hepatitis B and C, and possibly depending on her uh, clinical history, um, HIV as well. So basically, you're kind of checking off that list of all of these potential other contributors that are on your differential, but still probably low on that list, but doing your due diligence, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. Well, I'm going to stop there on diagnosis for now. And settle on the fact that we've made the diagnos diagnosis that this patient has diabetic nephropathy. And uh, we'll discuss the criteria for clinical diagnosis a little bit later. But at this point in time, I want to establish just a few definitions. I don't want to establish a few definitions. Do I? 
I think it's always good to define things, Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think what you were trying to get across here, Sophie, (laughs) is that diabetic nephropathy, diabetic nephropathy um, typically present... uh, Let me, okay, let me rephrase this. Diabetic nephropathy um, is used to describe diabetics who have proteinuric renal disease and have the sort of classic glomerular changes if we were to biopsy them. (laughs) Is that where you were going, Sophie? (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) And so to summarize, (laughs) diabetic nephropathy refers to, hold on, let me just regroup. Um, thank you, Sarah, for your clarification. (laughs) Okay. So to summarize, diabetic nephropathy refers to albuminuria with specific glomerular changes, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, can we have diabetic kidney disease without having diabetic nephropathy and albuminuria? Judy or Sarah can yeah. answer. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> I will jump in and say that yes, we can. Um, so there's an all-encompassing term, which is diabetic kidney disease, um, and that includes classic diabetic nephropathy, which is you know what we think of when we think about um, diabetes often, which is albuminuria or proteinuria, um, and often a progressive loss of GFR, but there's also non-albuminuric diabetic kidney disease, and that seems to um, be associated with damage to other parts of the kidney, which is not the glomerulus. Okay. That's, that was a really nice explanation, Judy, as always. So if it's all diabetic kidney disease, does it matter if it's albuminuric or non-albuminuric? Yes. Okay. And why is that? Well, non-albuminuric um, diabetic kidney disease is until we did this podcast script, I did not know this, but is more common in type two than type one diabetics and has, but we do, I I did know that it is, has a slower trajectory of GFR decline. And and we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast where we talked about the importance of albuminuria in general in kidney disease and that albuminuria is associated with a more aggressive decline um, in kidney function. So that holds true for diabetes specifically. Okay. So... This is going to be a sort of a, a theme throughout, but albuminuria is bad. Just keeping things going forward, what is the incidence and prevalence of CKD and ESRD in diabetic nephropathy anyways? Um, so diabetes affects about 10% of the United States population. And of those, that 10%, about 25 to 30% will have diabetic kidney disease. Diabetes is actually the leading cause of chronic kidney disease worldwide, and diabetes accounts for 50% or half of all patients with end-stage renal disease. Wow. Judy, that's a lot. 50% of all patients with end-stage kidney disease is caused by diabetic kidney disease. I, I, I would like to say I'm not surprised, but I still am. That's a really big number. So why is it then that the incidence of end-stage kidney disease among those with diabetes is so low? Well, you know, when we talk about patients with diabetes, um, 
the ones who actually make it to dialysis or transplantation are actually the survivors because the vast majority of them actually die from cardiovascular disease before they um, have um, kidney failure. It's actually not a sign of success. It's a sign of um, how terrible diabetes is to um, the body in general and not just to the kidneys. Yeah, you actually explained that quite eloquently about a really bad disease. To reiterate, diabetic nephropathy is really bad news. Let's talk just a little bit more about this. What are the cardiovascular and mortality outcomes in diabetic nephropathy-associated chronic kidney disease? Well, chronic kidney disease worsens both the cardiovascular and the non-cardiovascular outcomes from diabetes. Um, and um, as I said earlier, most patients with diabetes and diabetic nephropathy are more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than to need dialysis. And just a little statistic um, that you put together in when you were preparing this script that I found really interesting was that in patients who have rising albuminuria and a falling GFR, um, each of those independently increase their risk of a cardiovascular event and death. So for every halving of the GFR, meaning if your GFR goes from 100 to 50, the incidence of cardiovascular events is twice is two times higher if you drop your GFR by 50%. And for every tenfold increase in your baseline urine albumin, so as you can imagine, if you went from 200 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams, you're still not nephrotic, but you have a dramatic increase in your cardiovascular events of 2.5 times higher um, than you would have if you had not increased your proteinuria. Yeah, kind of sobering statistics, aren't they? I don't think people really think about that, particularly sometimes I feel like the kidneys are sort of the forgotten organ until they become an issue. But just to um, emphasize this one last time, chronic kidney disease and albuminuria have really bad cardiovascular and mortality outcomes in patients with diabetes. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that leads to dialysis having such a bad name is because people associate a lot of the end-of-life complications of diabetes with dialysis when really it's that these patients have diabetes and have multiple complications of their diabetes for 20 years and they have dialysis. Um, and it's not the dialysis itself that's often um, the main cause, for example, their foot amputations or their infections or these other things that they're struggling with at the same time that they're struggling with kidney failure. Yeah, they oftentimes just seem to go hand in hand. In hand. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of patients, when you're talking to them about dialysis, say that they, they see dialysis as a death sentence um, when really it's actually a life-extending treatment. Um, and often what are the bigger problems is the cardiovascular disease or the infections or the other complications that come from, from diseases like diabetes. Yeah, agree. Yeah. So um, our next podcast is going to cover the RAS system, our renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system, uh, that our RAS system and diabetes. But I now want to briefly touch base on available treatments for diabetic nephropathy and really our 
very brief approach to how we treat a patient with diabetes. So Judy, number one, what are the main goals in managing a patient with diabetic kidney disease? And what are some of our options for them these days? So diabetes is really a systemic disease. And first and foremost, it's really important for the patient to try to achieve good glycemic control um, and really good blood pressure control. So we say that the blood pressure should be definitely less than 140 over 90. Um, in particular, we like um, angiotensin inhibitors and um, um, aldosterone receptor blockers, or ARBs, for blood pressure control um, in diabetics, and, and also to lower, if they have proteinuria, to, to lower proteinuria, um, because as we'll explain in our next podcast, by blocking the effects of the RAS system, we can really slow the progression of diabetic nephropathy. And um, when ACEs and ARBs came along, they were really the first effective treatment from a, a kidney standpoint that we had for diabetic kidney disease. Um, and then we want to focus on other lifestyle modifications, such as smoking cessation, weight loss, et cetera, exercise. Um, and then very recently, um, there's a new class of medications called the SGLT2 inhibitors. And as nephrologists, we're super excited about these because they've been shown to have an additive effect on top of ACEs and ARBs, so on top of medications that block the RAS system. And they work by inhibiting sodium and glucose uptake in the kidney. And the mechanisms of how they are so protective for the kidneys are not fully understood. Um, and we'll, we may dive into this in a little bit more detail in another podcast. But what is very clear is that they lower albuminuria, and they significantly decrease the risk of cardiovascular death and the risk of regressing to end-stage kidney disease on top of ACEs and ARBs. So um, increasingly, they're also becoming a cornerstone of therapy for, for people with diabetic kidney disease. Yeah. Boy, you just, you just covered that one like 100%. Sarah, what are you doing these days? I have nothing to do because... Judy just answered all the questions for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Well put, Judy. So I think uh, that's a good segue into us trying to tie up our podcast for this evening. So we'll go into our key points. I'll probably just take them on my own. Now, one, diabetes is a leading cause of chronic kidney disease worldwide, accounting for 50% of end-stage kidney disease. Two, diabetic kidney disease dramatically worsens cardiovascular and mortality outcomes. And three, diabetic nephropathy is a progressive disease marked by a bunch of things, um, glomerular, I should take that one out, huh? Just glomerular changes, yeah. We'll talk about more specifically the glomerular changes in a following podcast. Yeah. And for the overactive RAS activity that contributes significantly to the glomerular disease that we see. So a cornerstone of the management is RAS inhibition and now potentially SGLT2 inhibitors, which contribute to that. Anything else to add to that, gang? Well, I have I have a confession to make before we end this podcast, which is at our last podcast. I admitted that I say 
the flozins, the SGL2 inhibitors, <laughs> differently than all of you. And I was convinced that I was doing it correctly because I had Googled the pronunciation. <laughs> my, my fellow and I then proceeded to Google it again while we were in rounds the other day to find out that I am saying it completely incorrectly, but now it is in my brain. The neuron has formed, and there is no way that that's going to change. There's no going back. You know There's what, no Sarah? Back. I also Googled it for the same reason. And that pronunciation is on like some YouTube channel. And I was like, oh man, maybe I'm wrong. And then it's like, I actually went down a deep, dark hole with this. And I was like, there are so many different pronunciations. Plus you can get them pronouncing it in Australian accents and South African <laughs> accents and English accents and Irish accents. And I was like, oh my goodness, this world is never going to be the same. Well, that's what happened is I, I Googled it and I got one pronunciation and I used that one. But that but then when I went back, the vast majority of them are not pronouncing it the way that I was. So See, I think the simplest thing is just to shorten them. So you don't actually have to say the frozen part at all. Just say Dapa, Canna, and Empa. Uh-huh. Yep, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just one of the one of the flozens. Yeah, one of the flozens. All right. Well, I, I thought I should uh, confess that I did go back, and I was embarrassed by the pharmacist, my fellow, after we had the same discussion <laughs> on rounds. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that was great, Sophie. Thanks for putting together that script, and. Um, we will be doing another podcast on the RAS system and diabetes. Do we need to do our legal disclaimer? Oh, yes, Judy. What's our legal disclaimer? So I'm going to try to do this from memory, but um, so the, the contents of this podcast should be, are used, should be used for teaching purposes only and should not be used for treatment, and the opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts of this podcast. Nice, Judy. If one could do it, it would be you. So I don't know if that's awesome. exactly correct, but that's the spirit of the legal mm-hmm. Close enough. That's Close the enough. spirit. All right. And Close on that, let's say work. goodnight, guys. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs>